there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your film discussions. Um, we're going to start off this week with a triple dose of news. Um, we're going to rattle through them because uh, some of them are interesting and some of them are just ridiculous. Uh, first off, Fast and Furious is going to go to space apparently. Um, I mean, of course it was. It was inevitable. It's just a formality at this point to announce it. Apparently, Michelle Rodriguez has let the cat out of the bag, but I mean, it, it's it was it's the natural progression, isn't it? From jumping cars from one building to another, to um, skydiving cars. It, the next the next step is is space, really, isn't it? So fair enough. Uh, the next thing is uh, Madonna is co-writing and directing her own biopic. I mean, that's not how biopics work, as far as I'm aware. I feel like it's other people. Surely that'd be an autobiopic, like an autobiography. Like, it's not how biopics work. Other people make them and they find the interesting stuff rather than it being your story because it's going to be a bit skewed, isn't it? So, um, just uh, whatever. Uh, I, I don't care. I'm not going to see it anyway. But it just doesn't bode well, does it, really? Um, it's just going to turn out bad. It's not like she's got any kind of pedigree writing or directing anything before so why would she now anyway but the main thing that i want to talk about is uh blumhouse because they are releasing four new horror films on amazon prime video in october for the halloween season um this is obviously really good because it's they're i don't know because it's because because of all the 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 lockdown and everything and they're their business model is really good because they make really small budget films and they tend to make a lot of money. But um, even releasing it to streaming would probably work just as well, kind of because it'll be a small budget and so it doesn't need to make a ton of ton of money. So it's fine. Um, I mean, they all sound pretty interesting. There's trailers up for them all and little like synopsis and posters and things, and they all sound pretty good. Um, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the supernatural stuff, so I may skip there's one of them that has some supernatural vibes in it but the other ones sound pretty good um so yeah i'm in the, i'm quite excited for this because blumhouse um have made like a bunch of good films in the past that i'm i'm quite into ready or not from last year was really good halloween uh the new halloween um i think they've been involved uh they they were involved in hush the one that i saw a, a number of weeks ago the purge films there's, there's a bunch of stuff that they're involved in that's uh, really good. So, I mean, yeah. if uh, The Invisible Man from this year was really good. It's, so, I mean, just... Sure. I mean, I'm well up for making for watching anything that Blumhouse does, um, pretty much. So, um, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm excited that they're releasing four new horror films. And two of them are actually coming out on my birthday, October 13th. So, I'm very excited for that. Um, so, yeah. So, um, yeah. But now we'll move on to the first proper section of the show, and that is, of course, Alpha Set. Um, for those that aren't aware, Alpha Set is where I take three films that I've never seen before, uh, and I watch them and I just give them a little, little bit of a, a, a review and a, some facts and figures about them, and they all begin with the same letter of the alphabet. This week we are up to R. And if you follow me on Twitter, you will have already seen what films um, I'm covering this week. You may even have watched along. Um, but if not, don't worry, because there's no spoilers at all. So it's all good. Um, first film I watched this week 
was Road to Perdition. Um, so in 1931, a boy witnesses his father's dangerous work, sparking off a feud that causes them to go on the run. Um, came out in 2002. Um, it's got a, it had an $80 million budget and it made $181 million, uh, which is an okay return um, because um, you have to bear in mind that um, the budget the quoted budget is just production, and then you have to double it for marketing. So it's made about twenty million, which is pretty pretty okay. I mean, you probably want more. Putting eighty million in and getting twenty million back, it's, mm. nah, it's fun. Um, but it's it's gone all right. Um, it's got a seven point seven on IMDb and eighty one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And I myself give it a seven out of ten. I thought it's a pretty good period crime drama. Um, so this is an interesting film because despite not being your typical superhero fair, it's actually based on a comic book. Um, and I think it's really good that Hollywood's looking to other comic tales and, and taking a chance on them because there's some pretty good stuff out there. And, like, you see it a lot these days um, that they're, they're kind of branching out and, and, like, The Walking Dead and Preacher and all these sort of things. But you, you don't... Back in the day of 2002, it's not... It wouldn't, didn't happen that much, so... I think it's a little ahead of its time in that sense, but um, yeah, no, I think it's really good that they that Hollywood have actually branched out and, and looked at those sort of stuff. Obviously, superhero films weren't necessarily as big as they are now uh, back then, but um, yeah, I think it's a really good um, thing that they've done there. Um, so Tom Hanks is the main guy in this. Uh, he plays against type as an enforcer, and he plays it really well. Like you're not sure if he's a good man the whole way through the film. He seems to be this kind of cold and calculating man who maybe hasn't perfected the work-life balance and and it shows throughout the film. Um, it feels a bit plot-wise kind of similar to John Wick in that like a mob boss's son does a stupid thing and makes an enemy of a very capable man. The difference is though in the execution because like you see Tom Hanks soften and become more of a father through the film as he's forced to be with his son like all, all the time. And, like, it's more dramatic and it, it, you've got that relationship that's kind of the core element of this film, unlike John Wick, where it's kind of just... It's all about the action and the stunts and things, which is is perfectly acceptable, and I love those films. So, um, yeah, but uh, The Sun uh, was played by Tyler Hoechlin. I don't know how you pronounce that name. Hoechlin? Hoechlin. Um, who actually goes on to grow up to be... Not just a man, but Superman uh, in the Arrowverse. Um, he's really good in this. Um, he too starts the film a little bit distant after witnessing his dad killing some people. Um, but like his dad, he comes out of his shell a bit more as the film goes on. And I think it's very well done and feels kind of natural considering the circumstances. Like that that relationship, you, you see that it's kind of... Uh, it's not non-existent at the start, but it's very much kind of... It, it's almost like takes second priority to his work sort of thing and so like and as it goes on that's obviously now top priority and and so and you, it shows in the in the film um i knew going in that this was directed by sam mendes and i've only really seen his bond films and 1917 obviously 1917 that came out start of this year end of last year um, has really good cinematography and kind of making the whole film look like it's one take. But I didn't feel his Bond films were anything special, like in terms of kind of how the way that they looked. 
and I kind of thought about that in this film as well. I was like, oh, it's, it's kind of it's fine, but it's nothing particularly amazing to to look at in terms of cinematography. But as soon as I thought that, it's like he was in my head because just after that, there was scene after scene of interesting shots and some of the killing scenes toward the ends are are just fascinatingly done and, and they're just so well done in terms of kind of angles and mirrors and perspectives and things and it's just brilliant um there's also a list of some other great actors uh in this that includes the future bond daniel craig paul newman in his last theatrical live action role it says theatrical when i looked it up i don't know whether he's done any director dvd i mean maybe but he didn't need to it's also got Stan. It's got the Tooch. It's got Stanley Tooch here in it, who is excellent and everything. And Jude Law looking a bit weaselly. Um, and they all give great performances and help to further your indecision about whether everyone, anyone in this story, is actually any good or not. Um, it's kind of this weird kind of world. It's a, it's very much a world of greys rather than kind of black and white. Um, there's a, but yeah, but yeah. Let's get on to some little little facts about this film. Um, so there's a scene in a diner where Hanks and Herklin, the double H's, are eating a pie and cream, um, but Herklin doesn't eat anything, because it turns out this is like one of the later takes, and in other takes, he'd just eaten all the pie, and so by the time he got around to doing the one that they actually shot and put in the film, he was very full, but obviously Hanks, being the consummate professional and the experience, more experienced actor, paced himself a little bit more, and so he was... He was chomping away during that scene, um, which I thought was fun. Um, the film is also dedicated to cinematographer Conrad L. Hall, who died shortly after the film was made. Um, he was posthumously given the Oscar for Best Cinematography after his work on this film. And I think it's deserved. It's a very... it's Like I said, it's it didn't start off particularly interesting, but it it's so well shot in later parts and just throughout the film it's it's just it's just really like good to look at and really interesting um um also one of the scenes involves a bank robbery and the set was perfect apparently when they looked at it they were like yes this is this is the one but it was backwards so and so you could only film from like right to left which is not the way that they wanted to shoot i don't really know what the issue is there but they could only film right to left and so in order to be able to shoot left to right, they shot, they moved everything into reverse. So like the road signs were reversed, license places were reversed, and even steering wheel switched sides, which I think is, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know necessarily whether that's, it was like to be historically accurate or whatever, but I it's dedication um, is what it is. But yeah, overall, I think it's a pretty good film. Um, it's got a really interesting story and a good relationship between the father and son that he kind of is built upon throughout the film. So yeah, I definitely recommend it. Um, film number two uh, is a little-known film. It's called Robot and Frank. And it's about an old man who starts to lose his memory and he's given a robot builder butler by his son to help him out. But he starts to use it to help out with... Getting up to his old tricks as a cat burglar. Um, so it came out in 2012. Um, it had a small budget of $2.5 million. And it only made $4.8 which isn't bad. 
but it's not great either. Like, it may have broken even because, I like you say, the budget tends to be about the same as the production, but because this is such a small, 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 small film, it's probably had next to no marketing, so that might actually have broken even. I don't know. Um, but people like this film as well. It's got a 7.1 on IMDb. It's got an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I give it an 8 out of 10. I thought it's a, ch- it's a charming film um, with some really nice character work in it. Um, so this film is set in the near future uh, and so it can incorporate some other tech as well as the titular robot um, it's got like a literary robot I say a literary robot a library robot is what I meant to say a library robot is there's like video calls that you can take on the wall like the phone goes off and you're like hello and they're on a big screen but I don't see where the screen was so maybe they're just on the wall I don't know um, phones and tablets uh, look like all versions of future phones and tablets where it's just like a clear bit of plastic or glass or whatever um yeah and I, like all this helps really helps to flesh out the world and make it feel like it's been thought about like it's not just kind of it's the near future but only in name like it's it's actually got some futuristic stuff about it and i really like that um so the titular frank played by played by a guy named frank frank Lagella. Um, he's he's a sad character, man. He's a sad character. He's losing his memory, and it kind of proves for some emotional moments and conversations with people. Like you get the impression that it happens a lot. Like there's a, a there's bits in this film where he keeps going into this body shop sort of place, thinking it's still a cafe, and like the people in the shop are like, "Oh, you've been in here all the time," and blah blah blah. Like not this again, sort of thing. And, like, I think it's a really interesting look at Frank, because you definitely see the man that he used to be, and, like, in certain times, especially as, kind of, the, he t- he kind of becomes a bit more used to the robot being around, you get to see, like, you get the impression that he was very good at his job at, kind of, burglary, it's not really a job, is it? Um, like, he occasionally mentions a job that he did sound, that he did, and he sounds like it would be, like, a set piece in another big action Hollywood film and this is what it's all really fun um but now he's just this grouchy old man that doesn't have anything to live for and just doesn't care anymore um which is kind of in in a way it's kind of fun because he's just like he's just like <laughs> rude to people and stuff but in other ways it's kind of a sad thing because you, you see him sort of losing his memory and whatever um but uh the titular robot is just this fun harmless thing that looked like robot toys that were around when i was a kid but like bigger obviously because it's like the size of a person and he's like often unintentionally humorous and it's written a great way that sort of balances that kind of priority of care but also like is emotionally distant and calculating it's really kind of fun and makes for some fun conversations and kind of he he will maybe like manipulate a conversation in a certain way to get an outcome because he thinks that's the most logical or whatever which is kind of fun um it's got a great supporting cast in this like james marden play marsden plays the son uh liv tyler plays the daughter and susan sarandon uh plays a librarian and like it's interesting because none of these characters ever kind of meet uh until like right at the very end so all the conversations that they have are all with frank and so you kind of see frank kind of being bombarded with all these different kind of perspectives and bits of information and things like that and 
Yeah, it's all it's all quite interesting. But I think the main thing about this film is kind of the core relationship between between a robot and Frank. Um, you kind of watch Frank having to adjust to the to robot being kind of around and about, and like it, he kind of gets to the extent that he kind of relies on robot. I'm calling him robot. Uh, just because that's what it's referred to, especially in titles and credits and stuff. So deal with it. Um, but also you you see it working the other way, like Robot kind of becomes a bit corrupted by Frank, which is how he, he gets to kind of doing some more burglary things, which is good fun. And like it, it results in some emotional moments and it's absolutely the thing that drives this film. And it's just so, so well done and so brilliantly done. Peter Sarsgaard is the guy that did the voice of Robot and... He, he he nails it being able to kind of have that sort of the tone in his voice that kind of is that caring but also just well, well, like that robotic thing of like being distant and calculating and logical and whatever so it's just well done and like and being at one and a half hours it doesn't overstay its welcome it doesn't dwell on anything too much like it does a really good job of balancing kind of the unfortunate position Frank's in with kind of the humour that comes out because of it and like it's like i say it's just this charming film and it's just really good um so robot was created by um alterian inc who are famous for designing the costumes worn by electronic duo daft punk which i thought was really interesting um what are the facts by the way now just just i just went straight in there um also robot was actually performed by a dancer named rachel marr um, from inside a suit, um, but due to the heat experienced while in the suit, she was actually replaced for a couple of days by uh, another actor called Donna Morgan. Um, initially, Day was supposed to read Robot's lines too for Frank so that he could actually kind of respond to them, but it was basically impossible to do both of those things, especially in kind of that environment and being cramped and hot and whatever. Um, so Frank's nephew, who was a production assistant at the time, actually read them instead. Um, when I say Frank, it's also, it's the character and it's also the man, the actor. Um, this was actually the debut of the writer-director combo Christopher Ford and Jake Schreier, um, who and it was actually taken from Ford's senior thesis while while studying at New York University Tisch School of the Arts, which is an absolute mouthful. Um, which <laughs> which I thought was really good. Like they've they've obviously taking this thing that, that he's worked on for a long time and and made this great film out of it. It's something that they were quite... They've obviously thought about it. They've got some really good things about kind of ageing and kind of future tech and kind of... They, they've not gone one way or the other. And I've read like some sort of interview or whatever and it said that they weren't... They didn't want to go one way or the other saying that uh, like more tech is good or more tech is bad. It was just like... It's just, it is what it is. It's, we're we're going to have more tech around. So they just cut, sort of did that. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was really well done. Like it's a really great film. It's got a solid lead performance and really good core to it. Um, but yeah, we'll move on to the third and final film of this week. <clears throat> and that is Rush. Um, so this is about the lives and rivalry of Formula One drivers James Hunt and Nicky Lauder. From the first meeting all the way through to the eventful World Championship in 1976. Uh, this is the most recent film. It came out in 2013. Had a $38 million budget and it made $97 million. So it's made a bit of money. 
It's done a, it's done a good bit of business. And it's got it's it's the best reviewed film of the week at eight point one on IMDb and eighty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And I myself give it an eight out of ten, um, only because I'm not doing point fives. Um, otherwise, I would have given it an eight point five, I guess. Um, but it is a very good looking film, and it's a very good look at two contrasting approaches to F one as well. Um, let me just start off by saying everyone in this is absolutely fantastic. The accents all around are brilliant. <clears throat> uh, Chris Hemsworth fits the playboy-style racer of James Hunt so well. And Daniel Bruhl kind of nails this super serious Nicky Lauder. Um, Olivia Wilde is also in this as Hunt's girlfriend-slash-wife. And she has a super English accent. So, yeah, it's just really well done. Like I say, like I said before, the it's such a good-looking film. The cinematography is incredible. Like, I love the use of the 70s TV graphics when showing kind of points and places and balances and whatever. And I love the blurry cacophony of colours when they're kind of disorientated and then the instant focus when they get into it. I love the racing shots, like, especially when they're all setting up on the grid. It looks amazing. Um, especially when you get kind of rain in there and stuff and it's when they're all, like, staring each other down and things. It's brilliant. Um, but, yeah, this film's bookended by... Brawl as louder narrating the story to us but it never feels like it's his film like it never even though it's bookended by him you're never like oh it's Nicky it's a film about Nicky Louder and James Hunter isn't it it def- definitely feels like it's both of their films like it does a great job at balancing kind of showcasing their careers with showcasing their personal lives as well and it's just really done done brilliantly um it's got a great job at kind of producing tension during the races and kind of sadness when tragedy strikes and joy when things are going that way. Like it just kind of nails everything that you kind of want it to at the time. And like I say, it's you don't feel like it's focused on either one of those characters. You get a good bunch of time with each of them during kind of their careers and during like their, their ups and downs of their personal lives as well. And it's just it's just really well done. Um, the racing... Is also really well done. It feels so real. It feels so dangerous. Like you, you see some crashes, and the, there's one critical one in particular. And like the CGI is a little bit ropey at times in the crashes. Like, but I feel it's more noticeable because the rest of the film looks amazing. Like if it was a CGI fest, then you probably wouldn't notice. But it's the fact that everything else is just so well done and kind of maybe done practically. So maybe like. The crash they they could have done practically or shown it kind of as TV footage, which they end up doing like moments after anyway. So, but yeah, I think Ron Howard, who's the director, has just done a fantastic job of covering what I feel is kind of the perfect. I've said this before in kind of other biopics that I've covered, the the perfect time amount of time for a biopic is kind of about ten years. This one's just under ten years, and it. And like he's he's cherry picked the most significant moments of the rivalry and given given them room to breathe. It's kind of nothing feels rushed at all. Don't that there was no pun intended there. Nothing feels rushed. It's just everything has room to breathe and kind of you can actually kind of immerse yourself in the scene. It's not just like this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It's kind of like this is a thing that's happened and then we'll watch this unfold in these events and then we'll see how that impacts later down the line. Like, understandably, a lot of the races are either skipped or they're included in montages because, like, 
if if you're showing all of them, like I imagine the runtime would be absolutely humongous, and also the impact of the race scenes will probably be diminished because you're just like, ah, it's another it's another race scene, it's another race scene, and another one. Like, but it's just so well done. Like, in kind of like I say, in kind of showing some race scenes. And you feel the real impact of them and kind of around them, but then it's kind of it's the it's the contrast between those intense matchups and stuff with the things that are going on in their personal lives as well. And I think it got you need the both of those in order to kind of get the full picture and for things to all have kind of impact. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of kind of because it covers quite a long period of time, there's a lot of characters that kind of flitting them out. And it's very easy in these sort of films to kind of have like some over the top characters because you're trying to get across kind of this character in a very small kind of specific moment. Like it's quite easy to just go a bit over the top and be like, and feel like they're almost too animated or whatever. But this does a really good job at kind of making them feel like real characters and kind of making them feel yeah just feel real no matter how much time you have with them like even if it's just like a minute or two like they feel like real people they feel like the conversations feel like a natural thing that would happen and i think that's really important when you're doing like bow picks and stuff because it's all you don't want to fictionalize stuff too much you don't want things to seem like like out of this world and kind of like it's a hollywood thing like it's it's just really well done um yeah, let's get on to some little, little little facts about this. So, there is a Lotus in this film, which is a kind of car, um, a number five Lotus that appears in this film, and it also is the exact same number five Lotus that appears in Iron Man Two when they have that kind of big classic car race around uh, Monaco, I think it is, or wherever they are, um, when Whiplash comes out. And both times, it was driven by its owner, Chris Locke, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and obviously, you got the MCU link with Chris Hemsworth, and obviously, Dan- and Daniel Brühl both being in those films. Um, I've, I've read, though, that despite them both being in the MCU, they've never actually had a scene together, which I thought was interesting. And they probably won't have a scene together, but it's just, I just thought it was an interesting thing. Um, Nicky Lauder apparently loves this film, and he wishes that James Hunt was around to see it. Uh, James Hunt died... And uh, not through racing, but he just died. Um, not shortly after. Um, kind of. I don't know. I was going to say shortly after the events of the film, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, apparently James Hunt would have liked it as well a lot. Um, he, Nicky Lauder also became good friends with Daniel Bruhl, um, who portrayed Lauder. Um, kind of, they spent a lot of time together, kind of working on, with Bruhl working on his accent and the mannerisms and stuff, and like. They, they became so good friends that Lauder actually flew Brule in his private jet to see the Sao Paulo Grand Prix. And Lauder actually flew the private jet himself, which I thought was interesting. Um, also, another F1 driver um, of the time, Jochen, I don't know how you say it, Jochen Mas? Uh, Jochen Mas. I don't know, J-O-C-H-E-N, Mas. Um he actually portrayed himself during the film, so rather than getting a stunt driver in there, he actually was like, oh, I'm going to, I can get behind the wheel again, I may be old, but I've still got it. Um, and there's a, a momentous double overtake that he does on Hunt and Louder at the 1976 German Grand Prix that's in the film. 
Um, and obviously because uh, Louder and Hunt, they they weren't on set to do the driving. They had stunt drivers. So a production assistant thought that Joachim Mass was also a stunt driver. And, but, and they wouldn't accept that Joachim Mass was his actual real name. And so when, and like she repeated, it was like, but what's your real name? I know that's what your name is in the film, but what's your real name? And he was like, Joachim Mass. Um, and she had to go, like, go and ask somebody. She was like, I'm going to go and get someone that speaks German because I don't think you understand me, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, overall, like it's just a really well-made film. It shows a really interesting time in F1 history that I think even non-F1 fans would enjoy. Like I'm not a huge Formula One guy. Um, I've sort of got into it a little bit more because of friends and watching it, but... I, I I've never been a huge fan, but it's it's a really interesting kind of looking looking to their lives and looking to this big rivalry that's quite historic. So yeah, go watch it. So we move on to a film that wasn't, and um, so this is a film that got that was partway through production or development and didn't get made for one reason or another um and this week we're talking about a topiary um now a topiary is like those is a hedge thing that you can cut into certain shapes you can cut into the shape of a chicken or a dinosaur or like a big spiral or something and yeah they were going to make a film of that and it would have been good now i'm just joking don't worry um so i want to take you back to 2004 uh in 2004 a time travel film called primer came out it's said to be one of the most complex but brilliant sci-fi films in recent years going on to become a cult classic um it's pretty good going for your first feature film as it was for shane carruth and especially on a paltry budget of get this seven thousand dollars not million seven thousand dollars um caroth not only directed but he also wrote scored edited and starred in the film so hats off to this guy um understandably hollywood took notice and everyone was really excited for his next project um that was scheduled to be a topiary he wasn't going to make another film he was going to make a hedge no i'm just i'm joking that that joke's not going to get old i'm telling you it's not going to get old um, like Primer, Atopiary was going to be a mind-bending sci-fi that had cult status written all over it. Um, and two of Hollywood's biggest producers at the time thought so too. Uh, Steven Soderbergh, you may know from uh, the Oceans films, Contagion, Magic Mike, Logan Lucky, which is an absolutely fantastic film. Um, he was a huge fan of Primer and he liked what he saw with Atopiary. And so he lended his support and he got... David Fincher on board, that's right, the director of Seven, Fight Club, The Social Network, and Gone Girl, um, who also loved it and threw his weight behind the project. But, I hear you ask, what was it that they liked about it? Well, let's let's go through this. This is a meaty, meaty film uh, with a lot of stuff to go with. So, bear with me. The film opens with a an ordering bloke with the extraordinary name of Aker Stowe, that's right, A-C-R-E Stowe, Aker Stowe, um, he's a surveyor, and he's tasked with finding out the most 
accident-prone spots uh, so that his business can form an emergency response team in the nearby area. Uh, he goes to a busy junction that seems to be the hot spot for accidents, and he starts marking out the directions of all the accidents, kind of creating a pattern. Uh, he then starts noticing this pattern everywhere, and he comes across a cult-like group that find the pattern in all sorts of things, from bone fragments from an archaeological dig, to an imprint in an amber mixture left there by the concentrated light through a telescope. You know, like when when bullies would like burn ants or whatever? Imagine that on a telescope and it's burning this like, imprint into an, am- an amber mixture. Um, so... So he's involved in this group. Um, infighting in the group, though, forces Aker and his wife, who is also involved in the group and the pattern and stuff, to leave. But they continue looking for the pattern, finding that some old photos taken of the pattern in a burst of light... Oh, sorry, just hit the microphone. Um, ...could be put together like a jigsaw. Um, the resulting collage... Uh, it's a great word, isn't it? Collage... The resulting collage uh, shows a mirror reflection of themselves looking at the pictures with them standing in the exact same positions with the furniture in the same place and even the colours of their clothes are roughly matching. So they've taken these photos, these random photos, they've put them together and they formed a picture of themselves in that current moment looking at the picture, which is crazy. Um, But there's something else in the pictures and it's abstract lines that look like a forest. And so you've got this forest and you've got two figures looking at it. And then it kind of goes instead of... And then this is where the second part of the film and the main part of the film starts. Uh, yeah, all, all that kind of stuff before was just build up to this bit. Um, so it cuts to two figures in the forest. And these are two boys uh, that are part of this group of tween boys kind of boys between the ages of 7 and 12 whatever um and they discover a machine called the maker uh, and the maker functions a bit like a 3d printer only it seemingly creates out of nothing rather than kind of printing onto something it's just like yeah we'll just make make a thing um but and as with the 3d printer the first creations are kind of basic um but the boys eventually grasp the process more and more and they start to manipulate the maker's outputs into arcs and petals and fronds fronds um and before long the creations they make start to become sentient and take on animalistic traits and they call them choruses um the boys create dog choruses horse choruses um there's definitely a joke in there horse choruses um and a whole gamut of choruses even uh, that include even a dragon chorus um but of course boys will be boys and so as is the way in the world of pokemon they go well we've got to make these creatures battle and so uh i mean of course there's more to it than going yeah let's do what we did in pokemon but they decide to make them battle and uh kind of uh, they because they fight for power in the ranks and the the right to design and create more exciting choruses and whatever um and the group eventually sort of break down a bit, but um, but they're also confronted by other groups of builders that are like themselves. Um, and there's more fighting ensues. And eventually, it's suggested that all these creations and the fighting that happens as a result of it cause the apocalypse, with maybe some outside forces manipulating matters. I know, I know. Um, 
I think it's also suggested that the group or groups of pattern finders, such as Acres, though, were led to invent the Maker and other similar machines that would ultimately lead to the destruction of the world. And maybe there's time travel with the adult versions of the boys coming back to try and deal with the choruses. I don't know. I mean, obviously, this is all a bit jumbled and would surely be more understandable upon a watch of the film. Or, as I've heard from Primer and his other film, that maybe after the third or fourth watch, it might be a bit more understandable. So, wanting to keep the cost down and be as hands-on with the filmmaking as, poth- as possible, as possible, Carruth dedicated himself to learning how to model and create the CGI for the choruses himself. Um, again, this is on top of writing, producing and directing. And it took him a number of years to kind of get it down, um, traveling to different visual effects houses and learning the tricks of the trade, as well as kind of getting a draft of the script ready to take to Hollywood. He said, I need the aesthetic to be something that I can count on and done a little bit cheaper than farming it out to third party effects houses. Um, so he did all that. And with the help of his new backers of Steven Soderbergh and David Fincher, he took his script and a bunch of demo reels and VFX footage to a number of studios and was greeted with a lot of enthusiasm, which is great stuff. But I hear you ask, why haven't we seen it then? Well, the studios certainly liked it and they were very eager to see it, but they were not keen on parting with their moolah. Um, It was said that um, Carruth wanted $20 million to make it, which is... Not that much, really, especially considering the scale and scope of the film. Um, And he said that nobody ever said no. It was always enthusiasm and amazement. And we can't wait for this. But meanwhile, there's no money sitting in the account. Um, In a bid to get it funded, Carruth even managed to lower the already low budget um, to just $14 million. Um, But even then, nobody, nobody... Uh, no, I was going to say nobody uh, I've got uh, nobody uh, decided to bite on it uh, Soderbergh said that if this were the 70s people would be throwing money at him it's just a different time now um, Cruth got tired of only receiving lip service and decided if nobody was going to say no I was going to have to say no it sort of just broke my heart um, there were suggestions that the at the time of trying to get it crowdfunded like with kickstarter similar to the way that the babadook or kung fury got made and but Carruth didn't want that uh he said if you've got money available to you as equity you can't just take people's money for free which i totally respect and would probably agree with really um so sadly Carruth had to drop a topiary um he dropped that that hedge that dinosaur looking hedge straight on to somebody else and he moved on to his sophomore effort, Upstream Colour, that came out in 2013 to critical acclaim once again. Um, since then, he said in a recent interview that, I've got one last project in front of me. I shouldn't say anything about it. It's still defining the edges. But that is it for me. I'm not going to say I'm doing a project and then hope Paramount gives me a deal or whatever the hell. I'm not doing that anymore. Um, so he's got one last, one last go in him. Um, especially because... I imagine basically being involved in all aspects of the filmmaking is a massively tiring and consuming thing. 
Um, so I'm not surprised that he's only got one more left in him. But in May of this year, that's right, May 2020, um, Hope for Atopia resurfaced as Carruth released a two-minute sizzle reel for the film through the Twitter account of his latest film, Upstream Colour. Um, it splices footage from a number of films, including E.T., Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, The Iron Giant, Harry Potter, and more, along with uh, some of the VFX footage of the choruses and the maker in action. Um, the visuals are combined with a voiceover from a boy, briefly explaining some of the key plot elements, as well as some of Hans Zimmer's music from Inception. Um, the post was uploaded with Karuth, assuming it will be quickly taken down due to the use of footage from other films. But nearly five months later, um, it's still up there and available to watch. I've seen it. It's really good. I would recommend going and watching it. I'm definitely more on board now than I was before. Um, definitely on board for this weird and wonderful idea. And I think hopefully others are too. I mean, like, this is now... We're now in the age of streaming. And you've got platforms kind of taking more and more risks. And kind of doing more original content. And I feel that this is the perfect thing to be revived by it. And maybe this is sort of a a, a way of trying to get it noticed again. So, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely be up for it. Um, I think it'd be a very good and interesting film to see. Um, even if it might blow my mind a little bit. So now we move on to the final section of the show, which is, of course, Quick Fic, which is where I take one of 20 film characters, I put them into one of 20 film franchises and try and make a prequel, sequel, spin off a reboot of it. Um, we've had Buzz Lightyear and Indiana Jones, we've had The Predator in Star Trek, we've had uh, John McClane and X-Men, so let's see what we will come up with this week. First off, we need to see what kind of film we're making. And we're making a prequel. We're making a prequel to the MCU. We're making a prequel to the MCU with Freddy Krueger. So we're making a prequel to the MCU with Freddy Krueger in it. Okay. So a prequel to the MCU means a prequel to Iron Man. So, and a prequel to the MCU would probably mean S.H.I.E.L.D. So how do you incorporate Freddy Krueger into S.H.I.E.L.D.? Well... Freddy Krueger has powers, so you could almost just plonk him into the MCU as some sort of villain, right? And then they could go, but he's like a weird, dreamy, magical person. He's not like a super villain, like a irregular super villain that'd be like, oh, we probably need some superheroes to deal with this. I don't know. I feel like you could definitely do like some sort of a Freddy Krueger. Maybe it's a maybe Freddy Krueger was like a former Shield agent. Or something that got burnt in an accident, and he he decided that he would haunt or whatever the other Shield members who left him to die or whatever. Um, and it's basically a horror film where he goes around killing Shield agents on the helicarrier or something, um, in people's dreams. And uh, Shield are maybe it's not even Shield. Maybe it's the formation of Shield because of. I don't know, the formation of S.H.I.E.L.D. is in the 60s or whatever. So, hmm, I don't know. I'm really struggling on this one. Um, because how do you get dream stuff into a film with, probably with S.H.I.E.L.D.? I'm really not sure. This is a tough one, man. Um, well, 
he haunts teens, right? He haunts horn. He follows horny teens, and but the thing is, if you are in a dream and he, you grab him and then you wake up, he becomes into the real world. Is the way that he, as far as I'm aware, is the way that it works. So maybe, um, I don't know. Maybe he could. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just trying to get all the information that I can in order to try and hopefully stir something in my recesses of my brain. But this is a really tricky one. Um, God, blimey. Freddy Krueger in the MCU. I mean, the the obvious thing is Doctor Strange. Well, to be fair, what you could do before Doctor Strange was around, the Ancient One was around. So you could do a sort of prequel with the Ancient One uh, and Freddy Krueger and dream stuff that way um, is a possibility. Um, the ancient one gets involved with Freddy Krueger with uh, haunting teens or whatever. Maybe he haunted a teenage Doctor Strange. That would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, that might be kind of fun. Um, but he doesn't remember it necessarily, or they just don't bring it up in the films or whatever. Um, that would be an interesting thing. Um, yeah, maybe Freddy Krueger's haunting possible magic users in the future um seems legit i don't know yeah there's a couple of options there in terms of kind of shield agents being haunted by a former shield agent who was burnt and left to die or um the ancient one i imagine shield will have got the ancient one will know about the ancient one before it's like before all the events of the mcu and stuff like they knew about Captain America and things, so why not? I feel like they would know about the ancient ones. Maybe there's like a combination. Maybe you can have a combination of the two, uh, and they have to get in touch with the ancient one and whatever, and blah blah blah. That would be interesting. Um, and then maybe they were like the ancient ones, like we don't want you interfering with our lives and stuff. We will help you out potentially, but um, stay away from us, sort of thing. So like. That's why S.H.I.E.L.D. and Doctor Strange and stuff don't really get involved. No, but to be fair, S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't really much of a thing when Doctor Strange comes around anyway. So, I feel that if you smush those ideas together, you've got something there. Um, But yeah, if you can think of something better than that, because which you probably can do, because that was not great, um, then please get in touch on Twitter at AllOutWalker or by email at filmyuppod at outlook.com and you can also find me there if you want to talk about anything uh, if you want to talk about any of the films that we uh, talked about this week or if you've got any suggestions for films that weren't or uh, you would like to talk about how Fast and Furious will go into space or you're excited about the Bloomhouse films or anything in particular in terms of films if you've been watching anything or seeing anything or whatever um that would be cool, and if you uh, also follow me at Twitter, you will find out the uh, next films that I will be covering for Alpha Set, which will be Set S. Um, I'll be posting those on Monday, so you will be able to find those there um, and follow along or watch along with me. Um, uh, if you would like to be a darling and leave a rating or review on your platform of choice, that would be absolutely fantastic. It helps. Uh, in terms of getting it out there and getting people listening. And if you would also like to tell a friend, that would absolutely make my day. Um, 
and yeah thank you very much for listening and yeah i'll see you next time bye bye